Welcome to Tedakawi's Manufacturing in Mexico podcast, where we talk to internal and external experts to provide you with news, insights, and best practices about doing business in Mexico. Whether you're thinking about expanding into Mexico or already there, this podcast will provide you with the information and advice you need to launch, operate, and thrive. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Takawi's Manufacturing in Mexico podcast. My name is Ricardo Rascon and I'm joined again today by David McQueen. How are you doing today, David? I'm great, Ricardo. Thank you very much. I'm glad. Thanks again for joining us. So to our listeners, if you've had the opportunity to listen to our last few podcasts in sequential order, you'll notice that we're slowly pulling back the layers to help you understand what it truly costs to operate in Mexico. We've touched on wages, real estate costs, utilities, and logistics. And now today we're going to focus on one-time startup costs that you need to take into account when expanding into Mexico. So Dave, I know that you've led a couple expansions yourself and you've helped countless other companies develop their own entrance strategies for manufacturing in Mexico. Can you tell us what kind of one-time startup costs companies need to include in their budgets for expanding into Mexico? There are generally five types of non-recurring costs that a new operation needs to think about. And they are, first of all, legal and incorporation costs. Obviously, you've got to set something up and there's a cost associated with that. Then there are the leasehold improvements and the facility expenses that you incur in establishing a, a new facility. There are regulatory fees and expenses, of course, that have to be paid and, and don't recur. There are your physical assets that you need to buy. And of course, people are aware of this, but there are a number of points about physical assets that need to be considered. And then finally, there's the initial staffing and the training costs to think about. Great. I think this gives us a, a framework to kind of build on our conversation. So starting with legal and incorporation costs, I'm assuming this is the first step that most companies would take as they're expanding into Mexico. Can you highlight some of the steps and what it entails, Dave, in term, from a cost perspective? Uh, sure. It isn't always the first step, and it may not be necessary as the first step, but let's talk about what you what you need to do. First of all, you need to know what type or types of legal entities you're going to require. And these depend, to some degree, on the types of activities you're going to undertake or engage in when you're in Mexico, because Mexico has different types of entities required for different types of activities. First of all, of course, most people are going to look at exporting as a priority. Most companies are going to be exporters. And, and when you remember that in Mexico, shipping goods between Mexican facilities that are both exporters is considered by the Mexican government to be an export transaction. Goods don't necessarily physically need to leave the country. That's going to take in a lot of people in terms of the business operations you're going to have in Mexico. So if you're an exporter, you're going to want to think about an EMEX corporation. And EMEX is the designation that refers to the government program that allows companies to avoid paying or to recover value-added tax. So very important for exporting companies. There are several types of EMEX corporations that you need to think through, but most of them apply to special situations or to Mexican entities setting up an EMEX operation. So for foreign companies, there's really two main ones. There's the Maquiladora Pura, 
which is the designation for standalone corporate entities that are established by a foreign corporation. And there's the Maquiladora albergue, which refers to shelter type operations set up by a foreign corporation. So one of those two is probably going to be what a company is going to want for their EMEX entity. Now, many companies, in addition to exporting, may also want to issue Mexican invoices to end users in Mexico. If that's in your plans, then on those transactions, you do need to collect value-added tax. So you may also need a trading corporation to process those types of transactions. And that can be added to either an EMEX standalone or an EMEX shelter entity. Other things that you might want to think about, if you're going to hold real estate and you want to hold that in a separate corporation, as you might do in some other countries like the United States, that's a possibility in Mexico. And so you might establish a real estate company for the purpose of of buying real estate and holding your real estate. If you're going to engage in services, there are special requirements in Mexico that apply to services, and you may want to set up a service company in order to provide services as opposed to manufacturing or other types of of trade transactions. And there are some others you might want to consider, but you can see that you need to think through, first of all, what you're going to do, and then that determines what types of entities are available to you, and you need to select from amongst those entities. Thanks for that explanation, Dave. And you know, from our experience, we've seen some pretty simple legal structures, some complex ones, as well as the ones you were highlighting earlier in terms of having a real estate company, a trading company, an Emacs, and, and all these things. Are there any restrictions on how many companies a foreign corporation or individual can own? Not generally, no. There are certain industries like uh, energy or military goods where there are some restrictions. But generally speaking, foreigners and foreign entities can own as many Mexican corporations or Mexican legal entities as they would like. There are combinations also allowed. Uh, So, you know, you can have a shelter manufacturing unit and combine that with some standalone corporations. There's a lot of flexibility. Great. And earlier when I asked you if forming a company was typically the first step that a company needs to take when when planning their expansion into Mexico, uh, you said that that wasn't necessarily the case. Can you explain when that might not make sense? Sure. You know, there are certain things you can't do unless you have a corporation. You you can't hire people in Mexico. Uh, You can't buy property in Mexico. Actually, you can, but if you were going to hold that in a Mexican corporation, you'd have to establish that corporation first. Uh, And you can't manufacture goods in Mexico without establishing an entity. But there's no barrier to investigating options, negotiating contracts, even signing contracts before you have your entities established. So there's many things you can do in advance of of requiring an entity. And you could also form one entity, not form the other ones at the same time. You know, maybe you want to buy property, so you create your real estate company and and purchase your real estate, but maybe you're not ready to form a shelter entity or a, a standalone corporation for trading transactions, that kind of thing. So say I'm a manufacturer and and I know what I want to do and and I've decided what my legal entity structure should be in the sequence in which I need to get them. How do I determine what it's going to cost to make sure that I'm set up the way I want to be? Well, it it doesn't need to be very expensive. Uh, We've seen a lot of companies form for between five and $7,000 US. So it doesn't have to be expensive. If you've got a complex situation, 
or specific requirements that, that make things uh, a little more intricate, then maybe it's going to cost you more. But you want to make sure that you really need that before you spend more. What you do need to do is you need to make sure you have competent Mexican accounting and legal assistance. And you want to make sure those people have established corporations for foreign entities before and that they've got experience with the process in order to make it go in a timely manner and to keep those costs under control. So that kind of gives a good explanation in terms of if I wanted to kind of form a standalone company. What if I wanted to work through a shelter service provider? What would it cost for me to set up that legal structure? Well, nothing. One of the benefits of a shelter is that you don't need a corporate entity. You're actually using the corporate umbrella of the shelter company, which is already established. So there's no incorporation cost associated with working with a shelter company. And so how does that work from a timing perspective? You know, the way I see it, there's two potentials here. One is working with the shelter and and another is forming my own company. What does the timing look under both of those scenarios? What does it look Uh, like? Well, shelter registration can be very quick. You know, you might maybe need a week or two to exchange information, sign contracts, things like that, once you've actually selected your shelter partner. But it's very quick because everything's in place already. Creating and registering a corporate entity uh, takes longer, and it involves a number of steps. Now, first of all, you need to obtain approval to incorporate. Then when you have that, then you need to complete the incorporation proceedings, and there are a number of steps there. Together, those two things usually take three to six weeks. Emex requires another two to four weeks to become registered as a maquiladora, and it, it has to happen after that first step. And there are a number of registrations required for local, federal, state agencies, and those vary from state to state, but those registrations have to happen as well. The whole process uh, typically takes somewhere from three to six months to complete. The other thing you need to know is that new EMEX corporations also need to become certified before they can avoid paying value-added tax. Now, we mentioned that that EMEX allows you to avoid paying value-added tax or to recover value-added tax. When you first become an EMEX corporation, you can recover value-added tax that you paid, but you must pay it in advance. The certification process requires that you operate for a certain period of time and reach certain milestones. If you start a standalone corporation, Emex Corporation, there will be a period of time in which you you can recover value-added taxes you paid, but you can't avoid paying it up front. Uh, so there's a cash flow implication. This does not happen with the shelter. The shelter is already certified. So whenever the opportunity exists to not pay value-added tax, you can take advantage of that. So from my perspective, then, you know, if I'm a company and I don't have time, you know, getting an EMAC certification, the EVA certification can take a significant amount of time. Is it possible to first start operating under the auspice of a shelter company and then transitioning to my own entity once I have those certifications in place? Yeah, definitely. There's no barrier, uh, legal or otherwise, to transitioning from a shelter operation into a standalone corporation. And in fact, that's the path many companies follow. As you mentioned, it's, it's much easier and quicker to start with a shelter corporation. But then down the road, when they have experience and everything's in place and, and they have a critical mass, then maybe it makes sense for them to go on their own as a standalone corporation. And mo- most shelter companies will assist in that transition. They'll work out a transition plan and, and help you make the transition. So we've kind of talked about different entities, steps that you need to take. 
length of time and, and cost. Now, kind of going back to the five items that you said companies need to consider when examining startup costs, what can you tell us about leasehold improvements and facilities expenses? What should companies expect to see when starting up in Mexico? Well, the first thing to remember is that you're probably going to be looking at at uh, negotiating a lease or purchasing a bare building. Even in the case where you have a built to suit, the developer is going to start off with a bare building specification. So there's a whole bunch of things you need to think about. Typical a standard bare building is going to have limited factory lighting. It's probably only going to be warehouse levels. It may not be the fixtures that you want. So there's an upgrade required there. Typically, the installed electrical transforming capacity is going to be minimal. It it might only be enough to turn on the lights and power a few outlets. Uh, So you're going to need to upgrade that. It's common for there to be a very limited amount or sometimes even no factory ventilation. So that's another issue that needs to be addressed. Other things, uh, dock doors and dock levelers, or even the number of docks might be limited, and the levelers and doors will probably be manually operated. So, you know, you that may be okay with you, but it may be something you, you need to correct. Floors are frequently only six-inch slab on grade with wire mesh. So if you need a, a, a bigger floor loading, that's going to need to be addressed. In Mexico, uh, minimum fire protection only requires hose drops and extinguishers, not sprinklers. So uh, for any company that requires sprinklers, that, that's going to be an additional cost and, and uh, investment. Office space, uh, you, you're typically going to have 3 to 5% of the total area included as part of a bare building or a build-a-suit contract. And that space usually is, is uh, included with air conditioning, some area lighting, and basic finishes like tile floors and drywall interior walls. But any increase in space or alterations to those basic specifications are going to be extra to the standard building. You also have to consider that standing construction is not normally going to support overhead cranes or other types of foundations without reinforcement. So that might be something that needs to be addressed. And then if you move outside the building, your exterior fencing, security lighting, cameras, often not part of the package. It depends if you're in a park where that's included or not. Parking lots normally are going to be paved, and uh, there's usually going to be some uh, basic landscaping on the exterior of the building. Uh, But everything else, uh, including any process-specific changes, are going to be in addition to the basic rent or purchase price, and you're going to need to uh, understand what those are and and then negotiate or, or pay for them. Great. And is there a lot of variation between different landlords in Mexico and and what's included in in a standard building? Oh, definitely. Tetakawi's parks, for example, provide a standard building that has upgraded lighting, factory ventilation, uh, added transformer capacity, because we know all our clients are manufacturers and we know they're going to need those amenities. There are some third-party park operators and some multi-tenant building owners who also do that because they are aiming specifically at a manufacturing market. So they're including a a lot of amenities and a lot of uh, leasehold improvements in the buildings. So there can be very wide variations in a lot of things, uh, what the standard lighting is, what the basic finishes are. We mentioned transformer capacity, security features, all sorts of things. You need to very carefully investigate what's provided and what you're going to require for your needs that's going to be extra to that. 
So as I start to kind of look at, at the standard building and then I start to kind of upfit it to meet my specifications, can I expect to be able to negotiate with the landlord to amateurize these improvements into my lease if they're not already included? Well, sometimes there's quite a variation there. Some landlords will not finance any leasehold improvements. Others are only going to finance a very limited number of items. So there's considerable variation there. But it may also be in your interest to directly pay for certain items. And you need to think about that. Transformers, for example, if if you pay for extra transformer capacity, then when you leave that building or if you leave that building, that transformer is yours. You can take it with you. But if the landlord amortizes it into the rent, well, then it's his transformer and it, it doesn't go with you. And while, by the way, while we're on the subject of transformers, there is another cost to upgrading your electrical capacity. Uh, CFE, the Mexican Federal Utility, Power Utility, charges a one-time demand charge. It's approximately $100 US per kVA for demand capacity above 200 kVAs. Many manufacturers are going to need more than 200 kVAs, and so you're going to have a one-time expense there to get that additional capacity. And if anyone's thinking they can avoid that, uh, CFE monitors it very closely, and they will shut down companies that exceed their paid demand capacity. So you don't want to be in that situation. So I think I have a good understanding now of you know sitting down with my landlord, negotiating improvements, deciding what's added or not added to the rent. Now, looking at other building-related expenses, is there anything else that I need a budget for at startup? Yeah, potentially you might have utility connection fees. These can be, in some cases, minor. In other cases, they can be significant. Uh, In the worst case, you may need to bring additional capacity in, so you may need to pay for transmission lines or mains piping of some kind. So it's really important to nail down with your uh, developer or with your real estate uh, provider what connections are there, what the capacity is on those connections, and uh, what you'll be responsible to pay for. It may just simply be a street connection, maybe nothing if it's already in place, or it could be significant if you've got to put in transformers and, and lines or mains piping. Okay. And do the utility service providers have other upfront charges that need to be taken into account? Uh, yes, they do. We, we've already talked about the electrical demand capacity, the, the fee that's charged there, but also your electrical insulation requires approval. Uh, it must be approved by a Mexican electrical engineer who has to review your plans and, and your specifications and then issue an official approval of that typically costs uh, somewhere between, say, 2,500 U.S. and 3,000 U.S. for a 35,000 square foot building. That's typically what we see. Bigger building, more electrical equipment will be more, smaller, maybe less. CFE certifies that insulation and that costs you another $1,000 or so for a 35,000 square foot building. Again, more or less, depending on your requirements. CFE is also going to require a security bond and that's based on your expected demand. It's typically about a dollar US per KVA. And then once you start your operation, you need another certification from the power authorities, and that costs about $2,500 per transformer connection. So I think with electricity, I, I kind of sums it up, but but what about gas and water, Dave? Well, once again, there, there may be a connection fee, and we talked about that earlier. There are, for gas utilities, there are demand charges as well to have capacity available. And uh, they're going to require a security bond from you. 
there are no certification or demand charges required for your water, but you do want to make sure the capacity is available to meet your needs. Okay. So I have my electricity, I have my gas, I have my water. What about data? Are there any upfront costs there? Well, telecom and data providers usually do ask for a security bond, but because it's a competitive uh, environment there and you have a choice of providers usually, they're typically willing to negotiate on the amount of that bond and may even eliminate it. So I think that sums up building and, and, and connecting utilities. So as a manufacturer, looking at the costs that you kind of highlighted earlier that they need to consider, the next on the list is is regulatory fees. What regulatory costs should manufacturers consider at startup in Mexico? Well, the first thing is that every manufacturer needs to submit and have approved an environmental survey. This needs to be done by a third-party environmental consultant who will list your waste streams and what your control strategies that you are proposing are going to be. The government then either approves that plan or they request amendments, and then you arrive at an agreement of, of how you're going to control your waste streams. This typically costs uh, somewhere between three and $5,000 U.S. If you've got a complex waste stream with a lot of waste and a lot of complicated treatments, it, it may cost more. But that's, that's a ballpark, 3500 to 5000 U.S. You also need to have your health and safety plan approved. And you need to also have a fire prevention plan in place, along with a training plan that supports it. And that, too, needs to be approved. There are a number of permits that are required by local, state, and municipal authorities. They vary a bit from state to state and municipality to municipality. But they include things like sewer discharge permits, hazardous discharge permits, and various operating licenses. With both of those things and the approval of your health and safety plan and your fire plan, the cost of getting the the approvals is not significant, but you do need to actually go through the process. And, and that's where you need to spend time and you may have some money associated with going through the process. So excluding the environmental study, I'd say a budget of 10,000 US for additional regulatory permits should be adequate for most companies. It's a good idea to review your company's specific requirements with somebody who's knowledgeable ahead of time, just to make sure you haven't got something that's going to cost you considerably more or be more complicated. And that's something, by the way, that shelter companies typically make sure you're compliant on. They, they're typically part of their standard service. But for a standalone company, you do that yourself and, and you do want to make sure that it's done carefully, not even so much for the fact that you, you know, have to make sure you've paid all your bills and so on, but you don't want to start up and then find you're shut down because you're missing some critical permit. Great. And Dave, from, from your experience, do you find regulation, environmental regulations in Mexico to be more stringent, less stringent than maybe the US, Canada, Europe? Uh, no, I don't. Typically, they're modeled very much on the same rules as uh, as the United States, as OSHA requirements and EPA requirements. So it, a lot of it's very familiar. The one, the one benefit is that Mexico does allow some flexibility in proposing your control and treatment strategies rather than, than mandating them. So sometimes it's actually much easier in Mexico because you can uh, make the treatment strategy specific to your operation, where elsewhere you might have to do it in some mandated uh, fashion. But right. they're very similar. Whatever people are doing in the United States and Canada is going to be fine in Mexico. Perfect. Thanks for, for that explanation there. So moving over from, from these regulatory costs, 
what about physical assets? You know, obviously it's going to vary from company to company, but I'm sure there's a few kind of universal items that you think a company that a company should consider in terms of physical assets they would have to purchase at startup. Yeah, I think there are. I mean, most companies, of course, are going to be well aware that they need some physical assets. That's not going to escape them. But there are some peculiar and specific things that it's good to be reminded about. We've already talked about transformer capacity as being one of those things. Another item that often gets overlooked is is signage. And you know, you need to think with respect to signage, obviously, there's going to be very little in the building when you start, but it's not just the sign on the building outside. There's a whole bunch of regulatory signage you're going to need in addition to whatever process signs you need. And uh, you're going to need to decide with all of that signage how much of it's going to be bilingual. Your basic requirement is going to be to post the signage in Spanish, but uh, but you may also want other languages on there to facilitate people from your home office when they're visiting or to make it uh, easier for guests, that sort of thing. So signage is often a bigger task than people expect. Great. And, and aside from these things, are there any other kind of types of things that you see some but sometimes companies forget yeah to, to, a lot of companies uh, a lot of companies will miss some of their furniture and fittings and this when you think about it, it's not surprising because uh, you're you're going into a facility where you need everything there aren't even any waste baskets yet so uh, secondary things like maybe a cot for the first aid room or microwave to the lunchroom they're easy to miss and uh, if the if they don't become obvious until when you need them, then that can be a bit of a problem and and interfere with your your launch. You may also need to install an explosion proof cabinet for contain or some other type of containment for hazardous materials. That's something to remember. If you're providing meals, then you need a cooking facility as well as a cafeteria or a lunch area that you would need anyway. And if you have a picnic area or what is typically called a palapa in Mexico outside your building, you need tables for that area as well. So there's a lot of little things like that that can easily escape your notice because you're going in with absolutely nothing. Right. And in the cost for a lot of these things, Dave, furniture, for instance, is it going to be pretty comparable to costs in the US, Canada? Yeah. And, and not only that, you have the uh, facility of bringing in items from Canada or the U.S. and importing them into Mexico to use in your facility. So if you have surplus uh, material of any kind, furniture or whatever, you can use that and you can ship it to Mexico and be bringing in duty-free and, and use it in your facility. You can also purchase in uh, Canada or the U.S. and have this stuff imported into Mexico and not pay value-added tax on it because you're using it in your facility, that kind of thing. So a lot of opportunity to keep your costs in line with what they would be and in fact, even to lower your costs if you happen to have some surplus in your current facility. Great. That's good to know. So the last cost that you mentioned at, at the very beginning of the podcast was staffing and training. What are some of the startup costs associated with that, Dave? Well, of course, everyone's aware that this cost is going to be incurred. You know, they know they don't have anybody yet, so going to need to hire them and going to need to train them. But I think it's worth emphasizing how significant that initial staffing exercise is and some of the things you need to take into consideration when you're doing it. First of all, the initial investment in recruiting, testing, qualifying, interviewing candidates and so on is going to be much higher than your ongoing operating uh, level of activity. It's going to require more people, more resources than you would require on an ongoing basis in order to do it in a short enough time. You're also going to face at the early stages of your operation, extra churn in those people, more turnover. So for a period of time, that part of your organization 
needs to operate at a much higher level than they will in an ongoing ongoing operation, and that implies resources as well as uh, time to do that. Now, shelters typically include this as part of their service, so the shelter will take care of that for you. Uh, but for a standalone company, you need to staff that yourself and you need to plan out that part of the process, or you're going to need to contract it out to somebody who has the resources. The next thing to remember is that everyone needs to be trained. There's no native knowledge because that facility didn't exist before. So absolutely everybody, top to bottom in that organization, needs training to understand what your company's about and, and of course, to understand what the job is that they're expected to do. That training needs to happen, for the most part, in Spanish. Even your senior people who do speak English will benefit from Spanish language training. But much of your organization is not going to speak English, and they need to be trained in Spanish and have Spanish language training materials. And another thing we recommend is that you do a lot of documentation. You know, The better documented your company is, the better your training is documented, the more sustainable the whole thing will be. So it's it's a task of not only conveying that knowledge to the people you hire, but of providing the ongoing supporting materials to make sure they have something to refer to, that they remember, that they can pass it on to, to future hirees and keep that learning curve as low as possible. You know, I'd say preparing and budgeting for the training process and, and the learning curve is one of the most important things a company can do. It gets you up running faster. It, it makes for sustainable performance, and it allows you to operate your company as effectively as possible at the earliest possible point in the process. I agree, Dave. I think you know when we look at the companies that that we've worked with and and the ones that are ready to train and prepared and well documented up front, they tend to do much better than those who don't. Even after you know you you look you know into the future a few years into to time, the ones that got started earlier, you know, they're hitting those economies of learning and, and really creating more of a sustainable competitive advantage in Mexico. So I think it's super important that companies be very proactive with their training approach versus kind of reactive and a little more passive. Yeah, I agree. Uh, oh, and as an aside, by the way, training is one area where uh, the government does provide some funding programs. So it's worthwhile checking into what's available for you in your industry because there may be some some assistance to offset training costs. And where does the training typically take place, Dave? I mean, say I have a very complex product that I'm looking to manufacture. How does it work from a geographical perspective? I mean, do, do I bring people to my factory in the US, Canada, Europe to learn it? Or do I send someone from my where this product is currently being manufactured to Mexico to teach the employees, what what's the best approach? How does it typically work? What what have you seen? Well, I what we typically recommend and and what we found to be the most successful. Consider having senior, at least the senior people or senior person, and perhaps you know extending to engineering groups. Have them go to your home office to train. That's a good practice. It allows them to absorb typically the culture of the organization more quickly. It allows them to study how the organization works and allows them to interact with the senior people they're going to be interacting with on a, on a regular basis. So it's not uncommon for people to say, have the, the general manager that they're going to have run their operation spend four to eight weeks at the company's head office and uh, do the training of that individual substantially in that situation. And as I say, you may add some other more senior people to that. 
The reverse is true typically with the unskilled and the, the skilled production workforce. We find that's more successful to treat them as a group and train them in situ in the plant. It tends to be much more difficult to train them in your home office, for one thing, the language gap. Uh, Secondly, the fact that they're not doing what they're normally going to be doing in the location they're normally doing it. That's what we typically recommend for you. For the actual workforce on the floor, greater success is usually achieved by training in situ in the facility, doing the actual task. And then for the senior management group, it's usually beneficial to spend at least some time at the home office. Now, the other thing that's helpful is to have people who can spend at least a fairly extended period of time after the operation is up and running in the facility itself, providing some liaison. So that might be, for example, one of your engineers from your home office or perhaps an experienced uh, production manager who's willing to spend some time in Mexico, perhaps a, a month or two, and maybe that's intermittent or maybe it's continuous, very closely working with the plant to be able to answer those those kind of uh, those unusual questions that come up, you know, we didn't train on this and here it is. <laughs> oh, well, that's that, you know, the things that we all know because we're there all the time. We found that helps as well. Great. Thanks for providing that insight, Dave. So I think that kind of summarizes our, our conversation to, to an extent. You know, we, we talked about setting up a legal entity, what it costs, making sure our building meets our specifications making sure that we're compliant, you know, from a regulatory perspective. We talked about physical assets that we need to manufacture our products. And and then we talked about, you know, hiring the initial workforce and training them. Is there any other advice that you would give companies uh, at at this point in time, once they've kind of identified their launch strategy? Well, I I guess I would say, you know, we've kind of covered the landscape here and, and given people an idea of what they're looking at, but there's a lot of variables and we've mentioned many of them. And so every company's situation is going to be a little different. And because a lot of these tasks or costs are on the critical path, I think uh, the best advice I can give is to reach out to at least some experts who can help you determine what you're going to need to do, what your specific budget needs to be, and maybe more importantly, when you need to do certain things in that process in order to arrive at your launch period or even beyond with everything in place that you need to have in place. You know, compared to other regions of the world, Mexico is a relatively inexpensive and open place to launch an operation. But when you're starting a new facility, there are a lot of boxes to tick. And uh, getting some help from experts uh, is, I think, uh, a really wise thing to do. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And, And thank you to all of our listeners. I think from my perspective, the big takeaway here is, you know, a lot of companies are very focused on their ongoing expenses into Mexico. And, and they forget to take into account these startup costs that, that they've mentioned. So, you know, learn from the mistakes of others and, and talk to experts and, and get the information that you need to make sure, you know, your project finishes on time and, and on budget. So thank you all again for listening. If you haven't already listened to the last three episodes, I encourage you to do so because it'll kind of give you a more complete understanding of the full gamut of costs associated with manufacturing in Mexico. If you've already listened to these episodes and you're ready to learn more about manufacturing in Mexico, uh, stay tuned for our next episode uh, where we'll talk about, you know, options for companies who may not currently own their own manufacturing, but are looking to expand into Mexico and take back control of that part of the value chain. Uh, So thank you all again, and I hope you have a great day. 
We appreciate you joining us for this session of the Manufacturing in Mexico podcast. For more information and resources about how to succeed in Mexico, be sure to visit our website, tetakawi.com. <laughs>